Major Lindsay and Africa presents Bouncing Back, conversations about resilience for lawyers. Welcome to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay and Africa, the global leader in legal search and consulting. I'm your host, Rebecca Glatzer. I'm a managing director in the associate practice group at Major Lindsay and Africa. In this podcast, I'll speak to successful professionals about the hiccups, bumps, bruises, and setbacks they've experienced in their careers and personal lives, and how they ultimately bounce back from those experiences to thrive. Today, my guest is Sean Sefna. Sean is Deputy General Counsel at Altistore, a fintech and services provider to the mortgage and real estate industries. Sean has been at Altisource for almost 10 years, where his practice focuses on technology transactions and M&A. He also developed and helped to manage a team focused on contracts, compliance, and general legal support to Altisource's technology, mortgage cooperative, and insurance businesses. Previously, Sean was at Schlumberger in Houston, and then he got his start in the IP practice group at Keenan Spalding in Atlanta. Sean received his undergraduate degree in industrial engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology and his JD from Columbia Law School. Sean's favorite aspect of his job is managing and developing teams. Sean, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Rebecca. It's good to talk with you today, and thank you for reaching out and for inviting me on. Absolutely. So in a prior conversation, Sean, about your career path, you mentioned that you did not always love the work you were doing as a lawyer. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those weird situations because in in the moment, I thought I was perfectly happy. And by in the moment, I mean over the first eight years of my career, um, I started practicing in intellectual property. It It felt it made sense at the time. I was an engineer in undergrad, as as you mentioned, and you and I knew each other back then at, at Georgia Tech. Uh, I was always interested in technology. I liked learning about new technology. It just seemed like a really good fit. Um, so in, in starting in that practice, I got to work on some interesting technologies. I got to try out both the litigation and the transaction side of IP. All, all was 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 good. All was fine. It definitely seemed like a good fit. Led to a good in-house opportunity at Schlumberger, and then eventually my first role here at at, at Altasource, where I still am ten years later. But the, and it all sounds great, right? And so if if somebody's in that position, just as I was ten years ago, you wouldn't necessarily think that there's anything wrong. But kind of all throughout that time, that whole first eight years or so in my career, I always looked at work as something that I felt. I had to do in order to make money. And, you know, to some extent, I still see it that way. I'm not the kind of person who would kind of ever, ever pass up a chance to watch TV or sleep in in favor of doing work. Um, but, but I was, I was looking at it and really my entire career in terms of my goal is to save as much money as quickly as possible so that I could retire as early as possible. And I thought I was fine with that. As I said, I was never I was never particularly unhappy. Um, I thought I was fine with that. But then as I started at Altasource and I started getting exposure to a lot of other areas beyond IP, I realized I was much happier as as a generalist, getting exposure to so many different areas of law on a daily basis, being forced to learn new things, being forced to step out of my comfort zone. 
And, and really that's when I became, started becoming excited about my job. I started to feel real ownership in what I was doing. I would like talking about what I was doing. Um, you know, so it, it was a complete change at that point and, and really no looking back from that point. So, you know, fast forward 10 years later, I still would love to retire early. Um, but it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, but it's no longer my goal. It's not my main goal that I'm working towards. I'm, I'm having fun at what I do. I enjoy what I do now and I'm really happy about it. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I'm curious about, you know, for many lawyers, I mean, yes, the, the debt one goes into, I'm still paying off mine, sadly, um, to get this degree, um, is, is, is pretty immense. Um, very few of us get out of law school without that debt. The lucky few are, are very lucky. Um, and, you know, once we get into a firm, um, there's typically two main tracks, right? You know, it's let's gun it and try to make partner at this firm or a different firm, um, or it's potentially to go in-house. And I'm curious about, you know, there, there was a... <laughs> Um, you know, two roads in the wood diverged and you had to choose one um, <laughs> at a certain point. Um, and so I'm curious about that thought process um, for you and, and what um, caused you to kind of make that in-house leap. Yeah, that's a really good question. So for me, for me, it was never a tough decision. For me, I, I always felt that I would I would find my way to in-house um, and it was just a matter of when, because the way I looked at it, even when I started as a first year associate, maybe even as a summer associate, but I don't remember that that long ago. Uh, when I was a first year associate, I kind of put myself uh, in the position of the partners. And I thought, OK, if I could if if somebody said we'll make you a partner tomorrow, uh, would I would I would I take that? Would I want that job? Well, of course, the real answer is, yeah, I'd probably do it for a year, make as much money as I could and then and then do something else. But but the the substantive answer is no, I, I didn't want that life. I knew I didn't want that life right then. I didn't want to um, at that point. I think my focus was I didn't want to spend so much time on business development, so much time away from the actual practice of law, um, worrying about the business that would be coming in. I, I would much rather be be focused on uh, the substantive practice of law. And as I as I practiced more in the law firm, you know, after I'd been there a couple years, I started to realize that uh, that the more satisfying work I was doing was when I would work with the same client over and over again, that it wasn't just a matter of here, let me help you on this one thing. And then I'll never hear from you again. It was okay. Now I'm starting to see the bigger picture. I'm starting to form relationships with the right people. Uh, this is all seeming familiar. I can start providing value much earlier in the process. That was very rewarding. And so for, for both of those reasons, I felt, yeah, that, that there was no, there was no real debate in my mind that, that I wanted to, wanted to go in-house. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, that's helpful that you did sort of the internal work of, I, you know, I think that's sometimes the first, the first big challenge for a lot of lawyers. Um, I, I am not one of these, you know, but the folks who's dad and granddad and great granddad were lawyers, you sort of follow their path and you don't always think about, um, you know, what, what makes yourself tick and what, what makes you happy um, until you get much farther along in your career. And I think it's astute that you kind of did the internal work to figure out, okay, no, I really don't want this. I want that. Um, and I'm going to go this path. Can you describe um, 
kind of what the process looked like for you, how long it took, what sort of efforts you made, or um, you know, what sort of luck you had in relation to finding that first in-house opportunity. What what did that look like? Yeah, if memory serves, so that was now about uh, about 12 years ago. Um, if memory serves, I started thinking about it after I'd been at King & Spalding for almost five years. Um, I talked to a couple of colleagues that I that I trusted. Um, one of them introduced me to uh, to a very good recruiter in the area. By that point, I had moved to Houston, so I was in Houston. Um, met with a local recruiter and kind of just gave him my my expertise and what I was looking for. And and really, within I want to say a month or two, um, uh, he had lined up a couple of interviews. And and fortunately, uh, they they resulted in a, it, both of them resulted in an offer, and I got to choose between the two of them. Now that's that's an incredibly fortunate story. I I, I don't think yeah. it's it's that easy for for most people. I think there were a lot of things that were in my favor at the time. Um, I was I was practicing IP uh, at a time when that was that was really really in demand. Uh, I'm in. I was in Houston. That that had a lot of opportunities, particularly if I was willing to work in the energy sector, which I I was then. It's probably not the best for me now, but but certainly at that point then uh, it worked, and so and so that that worked well. Although kind of as it's a good question, Rebecca, because actually as I'm thinking about it, I realized there was a process before then. I kind of just skipped ahead to to what worked. I think before then, um, I did kind of set up job alerts and and there would be jobs that seemed interesting and I would apply online and that would really really go nowhere. I don't think I ever got even a single interview going about it that way. So I guess I, I erased that from my memory until I, until I really thought about it. Um, so, so I would definitely recommend kind of going with the, with the second, second approach, the one that worked of talk to your network, figure out if they know anybody, um, talk to recruiters in the area and, and go from, go from that point on. And for the listening audience, I am not paying Sean to help <laughs> the importance of recruiters, <laughs> although it's much appreciated. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think you hit on a couple of really good points here for folks who are thinking about this and are thinking about doing what you did. Um, you know, sometimes geography can be a hindrance, right? Um, you know, it, it, depending on what city you are in. You should take a look at, you know, what what companies exist there, and would you want to work for those type of companies? And to your point, um, in certain parts of the company, gas and energy are the drivers, and other parts of the, the country, other things are drivers. And so um, that's an important consideration. And I, you know, I do tell folks um, who are looking to make this leap to kind of spread it far and wide, um, you know, in the sense that. Um, you don't know until you sort of get into the market what's going to work um, in terms of where you're going to get traction and kind of what types of employers are going to sit up and take notice um, when you when you apply. What, what would you say, I, I won't hold you to this because it was a, a bit of a time ago, but once you first started sort of dipping your toe into the market or talking to people, Sean, and, and, and to the point in which you actually had, you know, a couple of offers in hand, what would you say was the approximate timeline? You know, how, how long did it take, give, give or take? Uh, so the timeline from when I first contacted that recruiter until I got the offer or? Um, or even from before, because it sounds like that before. was a fairly short process. But even when this was sort of like a, a thing in the back of your mind where you start mm. 
talking to you know colleagues and friends and trusted you know folks to say i'm thinking about doing this what do you what do you know about doing in-house um, you know, at that point to having it off having some offers that's a good point i would say um so i do know working backwards i do know that i, I got the offers and joined in-house in about april of 2010 and so i want to say that the the process started i really started talking to others and thinking about it I want to say probably November or December of the of the previous year. Okay. So that's okay. that's maybe four or five months, which which I think is still pretty quick. It but is. I don't know. What do it you is. think? No, yeah. I, I totally think I think that was quick. I mean, I think that was definitely fortuitous because I think for most folks who ask me, how long is this going to take? You know, I say something like nine to twelve months, mm -hmm. eighteen. You know, it, it it depends on your practice area and if what you're doing is in high demand and your flexibility and a whole bunch of other factors. But um, I think that was a pretty quick timeline which is which is really which is really great in terms of choosing between the offers i'm curious um you know without naming names you know whether certain characteristics or things you were looking for um you know to help you make that decision in terms of like size of legal department or nature of the business or, or were there other factors that you considered when you decided you know where you wanted to go yeah it, it really came down to one thing which was there there was one opportunity where it felt like the structure was really really flat that there were a bunch of people who would be my peers essentially then maybe two two deputy chief ip councils and then one one chief ip council and that and that was it and then the other opportunity it was it, it was more of a you know a a, a pyramid where there were, you know, certainly a lot of peers, but then there was another layer of management over them, and then another, and then another, and then eventually a, a deputy, sorry, a definitely, a, eventually a chief IP council role. And at that time, my desire was, I, I thought that the, the flat structure would not be a good one for me, that I wanted to see a path to regularly getting maybe every three or four years being able to get a promotion being able to take on new responsibilities etc that i just had a hard time visualizing in the in the in the flat structure yeah, absolutely yeah. I really sort of like i don't want to languish i want the opportunity to kind of move up in the, in the right. system. which brings me to you know you have steadily at a pretty rapid clip from from my perspective um you know we have an in-house um division here at mla and we we make in-house placements and i've been a part of some of those placements um and so you know in my mind 10 years is a pretty rapid succession from senior counsel then to associate general counsel then to de deputy general counsel at all source and i'd love to hear a little bit more about you know your perspective and how that happened yeah, I think I think it, it it's almost a natural byproduct, at least in my case, of just being really excited about the work that I'm doing, really willing to uh, to take on new responsibilities and learn new things, step out of your comfort zone, and combined with an environment that encourages that. And I think when you combine all that together, that led to me coming in day one to be essentially the head of IP. And then month two, I'm already 
essentially the general counsel for the technology businesses. So I'm learning this whole new area of law. Yes, there are a lot of that are overlaps, but there were a lot of things that I had never done before. And then from then on, it just kept growing. And then I started taking on M&A and then data privacy and eventually started managing a, a larger team that does all of our contracts. And it's it's just been kind of a natural progression. And and that's happened. I think the the promotions and the title changes and everything have been they're certainly nice <laughs> and and I appreciate that but but that kind of undersells the real the real benefit of this type of culture which is that any given day I could take on new responsibilities take on uh, either I'm supporting a different business or a new area of law whatever it is and and really that growth has been happening almost on a daily basis or certainly on a weekly or monthly basis here um and that's really been the the value of the experience that I've had more so than the than the title changes and the promotions over the years. Yeah, no, definitely. And I know over the course of this, you have, you know, it sounds like you've gone from to managing more and more people, which is a little bit different than, you know, managing yourself or learning the law or informing a client of, you know, what the law is and what they can and cannot do and their constraints. Um, I, I was wondering, you know, how that was for you. You know, we don't teach management of people in law school, generally speaking. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm wondering, number one, how that transit, you know, how the management of people, um, how you found it um, to be, and then where those skills came from. Um, you know, did, did you learn them along the way or did you have something that you could fall back on to sort of rely on in your efforts to do that? No, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, it's certainly been far and away the best, most enjoyable part of my job is um, working with uh, people who are either interns still in law school or maybe just a few years out, kind of guiding them, helping them improve their skills, um, and at the same time learning from them. I mean, when you talk to somebody with a completely different perspective from you, uh, they're coming at things with a blank slate. They're going to think of questions that that uh, that you never thought of in some ways that that ends up leading you to, to figure out a better way with them. But far and away, it's been the best part of my job. When I look back on my career, um, not that it's winding down or anything, but at this point, when I look back, the, um, you know, the greatest satisfaction comes from thinking about, you know, the, the person who started as a, as a legal intern in our, in our company. And I, I saw something special in him right away, started working with him regularly, worked for him to get promoted a few times. And now, now he's my peer in the, in the group and, and leading our, our corporate governance team. And then there, there are other people that, that I've seen and helped kind of grow. Some of them have left the company and doing great things outside the company. Some of them are still in the company, taking leadership roles. That's kind of what I, what I look back on and really get a lot of satisfaction from. Yeah, no, I think I think that's I think that's right. I think you know it's an important skill set that you know often when we are asked by companies to find legal talent to go in-house, um, you know, one of the sort of things that we are given or tasks that we are given is to not just find someone who's super smart and did really well in law school or is doing really well in their firm and has a super high IQ, but it's the EQ piece of it that is really the challenge, you know, right? And sometimes I'm explaining to folks if they didn't get the job, you know, 
it would be great if you could get some management experience inside your firm, if you could manage some junior associates or, you know, even a paralegal, like, you know, understanding what it is to do that and help motivate other people is a, is a key skill set when um, you're leading team. So, you know, I think it's great that you find that so rewarding. Do you have any advice for people who are trying to kind of garner this skill set and haven't thus far in their career path, you know, had the opportunity to like, manage other people, manage teams, build teams, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if it's somebody like in that in that kind of uh, hypothetical that you gave where somebody's uh does hasn't had that opportunity and they're trying to build that skill so that they can show that they're 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 able to to lead a team, I would say, you know, managing doesn't doesn't come just from titles and direct responsibility. I mean, maybe yeah, you you think back to to being in a in a law firm, you know, by the time you're a second, third, fourth year associate, you might be at least informally supervising a summer associate or a first year associate. So start kind of focusing on those skills at that time. Think about, you know, what does it really mean to 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 manage them? Uh, be proactive about providing feedback. Make sure you're you're somebody that that the the more junior people, want to work with that they're seeing value out of working with you and that will that will definitely start to hone your skills if you're already kind of in-house and you're just not in a managerial role um i would say that there are there are a couple things first of all um same same kind of situation that okay maybe everybody's a maybe everybody's a council or whatever the title is but when when new people come in try to take a more proactive role in being the one to onboard them, train them, et cetera. People will take notice of those kinds of things, especially if you're if you're doing a good job at it. Yeah, no, I think that's that's really great practical advice. So the theme of this podcast is resilience, and it is my um, position that any lawyer who you know stays in this profession for a significant period of time as you have and keeps hacking away at it and has had the sort of success that you've had, you know, kind of being at one of the top firms in the Atlanta market, first of all, um, being very successful there for several years, making this leap from law firm to in-house, which a lot of people want to do, but not everyone is successful at doing. And then to kind of, you know, continually climb the ladder, um, you know, at such a large company, all of these to me are markers of um, resilience, not that I'm an expert, but based on my limited knowledge, I, I believe that to be true. So I think that you are a resilient person from an outside looking, an outsider looking in, um, even if you would describe yourself as such, but I, I definitely think you're a resilient <laughs> person. And so I wanted to ask you, Sean, like a lot of people who are resilient and are willing to keep going, you know, in terms of growth and have a growth mindset and want to improve themselves, it's not always innate. Like it's it, it's many times, you know, something that is learned. Um, you know, either in their formative years, or they have like a mentor or a parent or someone else in their lives that has demonstrated what resiliency is um, to them and how to keep going at, at something and keep hacking away at it. And I was wondering if you know there are any such people in your life or any sort of formative experiences that you believe kind of have helped shape your success? That's a really good question. So 
no no specific people are coming to mind and i'm sure any family members who are who are going to listen to this are now going to get mad at me that i that i didn't <laughs> think about them um but but no specific people come to mind but you know the it, I, to me it it was a gradual process that that started when i was a kid and continued at least until i want to say five or six years ago. So we're, we're talking about a 30 year span of things that, that uh, helped me see that it's not about, it's not about avoiding mistakes. It's not about um, not getting flustered when things happen. It's not about not, not freaking out. Everybody freaks out. I freak out all the time. If there's something that comes up that I don't immediately know how to handle, it's it's okay. Whatever you're feeling, it's okay to feel those feelings, um, honor those feelings, but then, then move on. I think resilience comes from allowing yourself to feel, to make mistakes, to, to, to feel some regret over them, and then move on to think, okay, I've felt that, I've processed that. Now let me think, what what can I learn from this issue? Um, and now now kind of let me let me take that learning, make that part of my skills that that then turns me into a stronger person going forward. So just as an example, you know, fast forward to I think it was probably this work example in you know 30 uh, yeah, five, five, six years ago. Um, you know, I used to really get down on myself anytime I made a mistake. Um, and I would struggle to get past it. I would think, oh, why did I do this? What's wrong with me? And and there would be times when uh, I felt it was a really big mistake that maybe could impact things for the company in a, in a serious way. And I remember there there was actually this one time pretty early at my time at AltaSource where I was telling my wife, hey, I may have made a really big mistake. It, in theory, could cost the, the company a lot of money. I guess there's a chance I could I could get fired tomorrow. And I just, you know, I was a bit overwhelmed at the moment. Um, obviously, I didn't get fired, <laughs> and and it okay. really ended up not not being a big mistake. But I think coming to terms with that and realizing that mistakes like that are going to happen, and you just need to accept that 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 that's part of the job. Nobody's perfect. Um, fortunately, I am I'm a lawyer. I did not follow my sister's footsteps and become a doctor. I am not a, a police officer or a firefighter or anybody where mistakes involve life and death situations. I, I've just come to terms with accepting that I'm going to make mistakes. Uh, it's part of the learning process, and that's okay. It's not only okay, it's expected. And and I'll be okay. Whatever happens, I'll be okay. There'll be something to learn from and just move on. And I think working through that process has really helped me become really resilient in the sense of it's helped me stay calm. It's helped me kind of just work my way through whatever the challenges happen, even if I need to take a step back and and move forward. So I, I couldn't point you through a, a single example, but uh, but that's kind of been the process for me that took, as I said, probably three decades to really work through. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's that sort of adage that, you know, we call it the practice of law because we keep practicing and eventually yeah. <laughs> we get it right. Absolutely. Oh, uh, you, know, you got to keep practicing. So no, and, and to your point is also well taken, thank God, um, you know, lives aren't at stake per se, right. Um, right. given the work that we do, and and we tend to take ourselves seriously as lawyers, as lawyers, and we should take our work seriously. But you know, we're human. Um, we are all human under the veneer of being lawyers. Um, 
um, you know, that's a really important uh, point to make. Um, you now um, are in the point of your life where you have children. And I am wondering if there is any, you know, advice from your career that, you know, sort of pops off, comes to mind, top of mind, that, you know, lessons, if you will, that, you know, you think is are, are really important for you to impart to your kids? Yeah, I, I think there are there are two. One is that they need to figure out for themselves uh, what's going to make them happy in, in the long run. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, necessarily, uh, you know, I'll tell you right now, my, my six and a half year old tells everybody that he wants to be an ice cream taster. Well, obviously, you know, I I'm sure that would <laughs> I'm sure that would make him really happy. But uh, he's also got to think about the long term and the health that's, risks that's and the right, uh, and everything. Well, he might be a uh, genius. I don't know. Like, <laughs> he's got it figured out in a way that none of us do. So I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah. But uh, but you've got to think about the you know put some thought into what's really going to make you happy and then and then make a decision that way. Don't worry about uh, what other people are going to think, what what uh, my wife or I would think, or what society would think, or anything like that. Really put thought into what's going to make them happy in the long run, and and nothing else really matters. Just it, it really doesn't. Um, the other part is it's okay to change your mind over and over again, as long as you're being thoughtful about it. Um, I am the counter example to this in a lot of ways. I, I used to tell people when I was five or six years old that I wanted to be a lawyer and I, and I, and I stuck with it completely. It was, I, I rarely deviated from that and that's what I ended up doing. Um, that, that worked out well for me and I'm very happy, but that's, uh, that that should be the exception and not, and not the rule. I I would expect them to to not have any idea at this age or even ten years from now what they want to do. And maybe even when they graduate from college, that's fine too. Even when they're they're my age, when they're in their forties, if they decide, hey, I want to try something else, that's fine too. And so just really kind of imparting that mindset to them, that would be the uh, the other goal I have for them or the other desire I have for them. Well, I think that is great advice for a six and a half year old or a 36 and a half year old. So, <laughs> uh, that is all well taken. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you so much for giving me your time and sharing your experiences with uh, me and our listeners today. I know that we'll find them valuable as I have, and I sincerely appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. Join us next time for another story about thriving after overcoming challenges. You can find Bouncing Back and other programming for lawyers on MLA's Legal Talk Network.